in 41 years of college coaching, I've never seen a goalie film or a goalie clip with a goal getting scored on. <laughs> and I always kid him about at these tournaments or these camps or these clinics. The first guy that sends me a clip with a goal getting scored on you, I'm going to give a full scholarship to. <laughs> I love it. I always say it. it it's yet to have happened. Welcome to the Lax Goalie Rat Podcast. Every week we'll be talking shop with lacrosse goalies, coaches, and special guests. This is the Lax Goalie Rat Podcast. Now your host, Coach Damon Wilson. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, goalies from around the world, welcome to the Lax Goalie Rat Podcast. I'm your host, Coach Damon. And this is the podcast 100% dedicated to the best position in sports. I am, of course, referring to the lacrosse goalie. And on this show, it's my job to track down the best goalies and also the best coaches in our sport and interview them and hopefully tease out a thing or two that you can use in your own lacrosse goalie game. My guest on the show this week is one of the great coaches, perhaps the greatest coach of all time, Hall of Fame coach Bill Tierney. I was trying to get Coach T on the show for a long time, and we eventually made it happen. A lesson in how to contact lacrosse goalie coaches, actually, or lacrosse head coaches, I should say, if you're interested in playing collegiate lacrosse. I got his email on the Denver website and politely emailed him, found him at a great time, and he made it happen. Coach T has not only coached some great lacrosse teams, he's also coached a lot of excellent goalies. And this is an interview with Coach T, very much focused on lacrosse goalies. You're gonna love it. He's got some amazing stories in his very accomplished coaching career that's still going. Last question I ask him is, how many more years you got left in the tank? And well, you're gonna have to listen to that to the episode to find out the answer to that question. Ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy this conversation with Coach Bill Tierney. Before we begin this episode, I want to tell you about a really awesome training opportunity for your youth lacrosse goalie. It's called the College Goalie Training Packs, and let me tell you a little about it. So last season, the NCAA allowed college athletes to sign sponsorship deals, and it was really a game changer for college athletes as they could now uh, make money using their name, image, and likeness, something they call NIL. And so, of course, this season, I've signed 17 goalies, 17. We've got eight on the men's side nine on the women's side, and each of these college goalies is putting together a really amazing virtual coaching experience for your youth lacrosse goalie. So how cool is that, that your youth goalie could get mentoring and direct coaching from their college heroes? This is exactly what I wanted when I was learning this position. So each goalie, like I said, putting together a training pack, and it's going to have things like an instructional video series. So this is them out at the field teaching us drills, tips, uh, showing us techniques, things that they use in their game. It's going to have a virtual coaching webinar. So they've put together, you know, one hour presentation 
that you'll be invited to on a different topic of the lacrosse goalie position. It's going to have a live Q&A, so your young goalie can show up live and ask these goalies questions face-to-face. It's going to have save breakdowns, so I sit down with the college goalie and we watch plays from their college games and talk through them. Awesome learning tool. And finally, you get access to direct message or to email these college goalies, so you can establish a little bit of a relationship um, and get a little bit of mentoring, okay? So each of the college goalies training pack is going to be priced at under 60 bucks, under 60 bucks, which is insanely cheap if you ask me for all that training. Um, And if you want to get the girls packs or you want to get all of the boys packs or even the entire bundle, uh, we've got some fat discounts for that as well. The coolest part of all of this is because of the NIL deal, we're partners in this. So the money's going to go directly to these starving college kids. Well, I don't know if they're starving. I guess they feed the D1 athletes, but you get the idea. You, your, your youth lacrosse goalie gets the training. These college goalies have put in a ton of work on this training. I've seen the, the product and it is amazing. Your youth goalie gets the help. They get financially rewarded. It's really a win-win. To learn more, go to laxgoalierat.com slash N-I-L. That's laxgoalierat.com slash N-I-L. You can see all the goalies I've signed. You can see more details about what specifically comes in the pack. I'm super excited about this. The virtual coaching sessions, they're going to start the last week of September. So if you're liking this opportunity, jump on it before then. LaxGoalieRat.com slash N-I-L. Pleasure to welcome to the show one of the legends in the lacrosse world. It's Coach Bill Tierney. Coach, welcome to the show. Thanks, Damon. Excited to be on. Well, thank you so much for coming on. You know, I've heard so much about you just by interviewing the goalies that you have, uh, that you've worked with and you've interacted with and, uh, and that you've coached. So this is going to be an honor. I usually ask goalies how they got started in the goal as the first question. I'd love to hear how you got started with lacrosse and when was kind of that first moment that, uh, you know, it really, it really hooked you. Well, it was interesting. My, um, you know, my goal in life was to be my high school football coach. And uh, when I went off to college, I was going to play football. I played football at uh, Cortland State my first year. And then the second year got told I was too small, so I was done. But uh, thankfully, in my freshman year, uh, a, a goalie, a young man who was from my hometown, didn't go to, go to my high school, a guy named Dan Viglione, who lived on my floor in, uh, at Cortland. And he said, come on, I need somebody to shoot on me. And so, hence the... Uh, and then having back then you had freshman teams, so nobody got cut. And so mm-hmm. uh, just the, after that freshman football season, just devoted everything to, to lacrosse. And uh, then when I got cut from the varsity football team sophomore year, that, that really turned, turned the tide. So, but I eventually did become my high school's head football coach. And that lasted one season. And, uh, then I got the uh, call of my best friend in college, Ray Rostan, that was the head coach at RIT. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> he was moving over to Ithaca, and he called me and said, do you want this job? I said, well, can you tell me, how can you tell me I'm going to get it? But interviewed up there with a great AD named Lou Spiotti and started this, this college lacrosse journey. Very interesting. So your, your dream was to be the head football coach of your high school. You achieved the dream. Right. right. You, you, you got the dream. And then and then was it something for you like I like I need a little bit more like I need to get that next step or is just the lacrosse thing was a great opportunity? 
Yeah, I think what happened was uh, the the not you know I even those three years when I was in college that I didn't play football, I coached at that Cortland High School, and then when I did my student teaching, I coached at Ithaca High School. So I stayed with the football. I'd always enamored with football, and then when I got out, um, I started. I coached a junior high football team, then a JV football team, and, and was having some success, and then. Actually, before I became the head lacrosse coach at my high school, I became the uh, assistant football coach. So it, it kind of carried through the whole thing. But by then, I think, uh, and then my my one season as a as a head football coach, I think we went five and four or something like that. And I said, I'm not so great at this. Maybe I should <laughs> stick with the stick with the lacrosse side of things. We had been doing pretty well, and uh, when RIT called, I, I just. You know, the, the the hero in all this is my wife, Helen, who at the time we had, uh, when we moved to RIT, it was January of 1982, and we had three kids under four years old, and uh, and um, we went from making 19000 a year to 16000 a year, and so she's always been a great trooper, and uh, and thankfully my, my biggest supporter, so that's what started the journey. Yeah, I love it. When you... Um you know, bouncing around a little bit when you're the head coach of RIT, you know, you're now responsible for uh, the goalies, right? Not only the goalies, you're responsible for the entire team, but how do you go about then as your first head coaching job, kind of making sure that these specialty positions get, you know, get adequate training? Well, as I said, it was 1980, 82. So I was still 31 years old and thinking I could still shoot the ball. So I, uh, you know, I, I had, luckily I had two guys, Eddie Purcell and Tom Sill, who had interestingly enough played for me at Levittown and then went to RIT, Ray Rostin recruited them. And then they were there as freshmen when I came. So they, they knew me, they had my trust in me. We actually had a much better group of guys than I, than I thought we were going to. And, uh, and uh, we had this goalie from Long Island, a guy named Andy Demetrius, who's a lefty and uh, and was really good. And so, um, you know, I didn't at that time, as you mentioned, I was coaching everything, you know, mm-hmm. from lining the fields and washing the clothes and, and, you know, making sure they were tucked in at night to, uh, to, to coaching everything. So really it wasn't goalie coaching at that point. It was more, um, it was more warming them up and, and then, you know, helping them with, you know, some things that I'm sure we'll get into with what I believe goalies should be. And, uh, um, and he did a great job. Yeah. Love it. Um, in your coaching career, you have coached or worked with a tremendous amount of goalie talent, I guess, you know, coaching at, at, at an elite level for a long time, you've worked with a lot of talent, but specifically a lot of goalie talent, uh, you know, Larry Quinn, Quint Kesnich, Bacigalupo, your son, Trevor Tierney. Ryan LaPlante, Sal Lacasio, they say that lacrosse goalies have a have a screw loose. Have you heard this uh, this expression? I'm curious if any of those guys, out of any of those guys, who who had the who's who's the most crazy? Well, it was interesting. Um, you know, the other one we had a first team All American at, at Princeton just before I left was uh, was Alex uh, Hewitt as well, and mm-hmm. he was a phenomenal one. And uh, and so. Um, and I've got you know, another great goalie stories. You know, we had a starter in 97 named Patrick, Patrick in 96, Patrick Cairns, who was really good, but he had gone flat a little bit. And we, in the final four, I put our sub in a guy named Pancho Gutstein, who ended up making the all tournament team and shutting down uh, Syracuse and Maryland. So, so it was a, 
the, the goalie stories aren't just those great guys, which thankfully yeah. we had those great guys. But, uh, you know, as you mentioned, it started with Larry Quinn, who was my high school goalie at Levittown, was an altar boy at my wedding. My parents and there, his parents were, were best friends. He and his younger brother, Rob, were altar boys at my wedding. And so it was actually Larry who got me the opportunity at Hopkins because he was at Hopkins when I was at RIT when the job opened. So um, I think they, they all have a little bit of, uh, <laughs> let's just nicely say, a, a different personalities. Each one of those gets funny when you mention those names and when I read those names in your note. Um, they were all very different, you know. Batch Glupa yeah. was a was a flopper. Larry was the Larry was the best of the best of the standstill guys. Took up big space. He was a big guy, made you a shooter be a shooter. And then Trevor became kind of a, a a mix of those two. Batch was his idol as he was growing up, but he was also big and he his 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 you know uh, success I think was always based on forcing guys to miss the goal. And mm -hmm. then, you know, you, you run into some of these other guys. You it was a lefty and just, you know, just very, very quick hands. And Ryan LaPlante was a, a work in progress and became great in his last two years. So they were all a little different. And yet all they probably those guys more than any players taught me the most about um handling players you know I, what I learned over those years was you just uh, and where the crazy part comes is you think it's rational thinking to tell them something oh you were off the pipe you went to your knees you were you know you you, you were standing too tall whatever or you're coming out too high what, what I learned from all of that was that leave them alone <laughs> you know they were they all had their own styles and you can give them those little hints and you can work on drills as we do. But uh, it, it's it's not a situation where you can just take that blueprint and say, OK, I'm going to make you a great goalie starting at eight years old. You can work on that. You can have your ways of doing it. But each being different, each being different size, each being different, uh, you know, athlete, athletic types. Um, it's hard to it's hard to kind of say this is the way to do it. Yeah. I agree with that. Leave them alone comment in, in a certain way, because it's especially it's a um, it's a very like, I don't know, emotionally charged moment. Like when you give up a goal as a goalie, like you're you're feeling you're feeling bad. And, and a lot of times you're not in the right headspace to, to take that feedback to heart. Right. You hear that coach saying, oh, stay off your knees. And you're just like, oh, no, stop talking to me. You know what I mean? Yeah, like shut up! I was out here seeing that hundred yard shot. Exactly. Yeah, you get in here. You get in here and try taking a step down and and see how exactly it, how it feels. Exactly. Um, so yeah, so you got a lot of different styles of goalies, but when we talk about like like non negotiables, like things that you really want to see your out of your goalies, what what comes to mind for you, Coach? Stay on the pipe, and this is something that Trevor and I have probably is the only thing that we kind of differ in. Um, my my teaching of goalies is to try to get them to understand that shooters are lazy. Shooters always want the easy way out. Attackmen want to be in the newspaper or now on social media. Mm -hmm. So with those things in mind, coming off the pipe is letting them out of, of being tough, letting them out of turning the corner, letting them out of taking the hit. And, and you see it even to this day, um, guys score on the inside pipe. Now, obviously, 
what Trevor would tell me is, well, you got to perceive the goal being directly behind you, no matter what angle the guy's shooting at. My take on that is let's get on the pipe and tell him not verbally, but you know, visually where he's got to shoot the ball if he wants to succeed. Now I've also had some amazing, great goalies, you know, uh, Doc Doherty, who was our backup goalie in 98, maybe, you know, certainly one of the best that ever played. He was, he was a total baiter, you know, he would get on that pipe. He would, he would, and you would say, I can't score on the pipe. So I'll shoot over there. The minute the ball was even looked like it was going to be released, Doc would be off to the other side. And, and it's very difficult to get shooters to, to execute when you say to them, I know I've been teaching you all these years to shoot, you know, between the knee and the hip on the far side because that's the perfect spot. Against this goalie, you got to throw it right at him. That's that's mind-boggling for for <laughs> offensive players, and so uh, and that's why that's effective. Uh, you know, you see Dylan Ward play; he plays with a high arc. I think that is the the most crazy, bizarre way of playing goalie in 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 lacrosse that there is. But here's a guy who's a a world champion and, and wins every every championship he, he he's in. Now you might watch his game with the Water Dogs now, and the other team scores on inside pipes on him, but they don't score very much on him. <laughs> and and mm-hmm. uh, he's uh, he's got quick hands, quick reactions, and even that style because he's so big and he does come out, and not a lot of guys do that anymore. It's disconcerting to the shooter. So my my one though is is. There's nothing worse than giving up a, a goal on the inside pipe. That's it. So, all right, stay on the pipe. That, that's that's the only non-negotiable. But in terms of, you know, stance and and arc play and, you know, how wide the goalie wants to have their feet and their setup, no concerns with that. Do you recruit a certain style? Like, do you think a certain style fits well in your Denver program? I do. I, I do. You know, we look, at, we look at goalies and there's hundreds of them and they're all wonderful kids and wonderful goalies. We still want a, a, a goalie who plays on the goal line. We're not, uh-huh. we're not really fond of the ones that play the high arc. And the reason for that, we believe, is that because at the highest levels of lacrosse, the ball can go from one side of the goal to the other in a nanosecond. Yeah. And, and then if you're off, if you're way too high, on this side, you're just giving them a six by six to shoot at, at the other side. So we really believe on staying on the line. You know, if, if you know the ball, for instance, you're playing against a three, three man up and you know, the, the big shooters in the top middle and he's about to get the ball. Okay. You know, take, you know, take that, take that step yeah. out a little bit more. But um, so we look for that. We, we're a little bit of a wider stance group. Uh, Trevor played with a really wide stance. Uh, I, I think it should be, you know, shoulder width apart, maybe a little bit more. But once you get too wide now, now you're, you're relying on your hands so much that, mm-hmm. um, you know, you, you're not going to get there. The one thing that I've I've become a believer in in these past three, four, five years, is is the um, is going down to knees. These kids mm. shoot so hard. Um, I you know that there's always this this battle back and forth with goalies should it be your stick first and your body will follow or should it be your body first your stick will follow I believe in body first and I can remember the first day I ever taught Trevor I don't know if he told you the story about how he became a goalie but basically we were living at Baltimore at the time I was coaching at Hopkins and at he was six years old and down in Baltimore, they started, God knows, four years old. 
And what they do that's pretty wise is they rotate every quarter somebody to be in the goal. Mm. And so it happened to be they were it was his first game, and it happened to be that he was in the goal in the fourth quarter. Well, it was six to six or something like that, or their team was up there. Their team was up by one goal, but the other team gets a breakaway. These are six-year-olds, you know, <laughs> and the kid comes flying in and he shoots this shot. It hits Trevor in a helmet. The buzzer goes off. He gets dogpiled. And from that point on, he thought he was a great goalie and ultimately became, I believe, one of the, one of the top five that ever lived. You know, so, uh, so when we got home, what I started teaching him was just I'd stand there with a ball and say, OK, all I want you to worry about is the ball going to your right or to your left. And, and I'm just going to lob it to you. And, and all he had to do was step left, step right. So that's why we started this whole not stepping out to the shooter, not stepping mm -hmm. out to the ball, but stepping along the line as much as you can. Make the shooter be a great shooter. Yeah, I love it. Speaking of Trevor, you know, there's a lot of lacrosse goalie dads and goalie moms that that follow this podcast, listen to this show. And it's a tough, it's a tough position, right? In the, the parent of a goalie being a dad of a goalie, you know, what, what, what tips, what advice do you, do you have for those parents? Well, it's interesting. Uh, you know, coach Metzbauer, who was with me for 20 years at Princeton and, uh, um, actually coach Trevor because I, you know, I, that wouldn't have been a good thing, good thing for me to coach him. And, and he did an amazing job with Trevor. He had that great demeanor with him. He could shoot the ball hundred miles an hour. And, and of course, Trevor had batch as his role model and, and, uh, and actually his first year backed up a, a kid named Corey Popham, who was a very good goalie from, from Baltimore. And, um, and so uh, it, it, it's, when I started to get anxious about Trevor in the goal was more after he graduated, when he went mm. into the MLL and played yeah. in the world games, because I, I know him so well. And I think in this, in this, you know, line of reasoning that we're talking about, I probably know every goalie so well is that they blame themselves for every goal that goes in. If yeah. they're, if they're a good goalie, if they're not a good goalie, they blame someone else. Right. And so, and you see it all the time that, the minute a ball goes in, somebody goes after the defenseman, you know, who, you know, who just got beat by, you know, Lyle Thompson or something. Okay, you're going to get beat once in a while, you know. But the ones who blame themselves are, are the great ones. And so hand in hand with that, um, in talking to recruiting goalies, I always make sure I talk to the mom and, and find out how she feels because, Moms of goalies have the toughest job in lacrosse. It's just, it, it hurts. It, it hurts not just if they lose, but it hurts every time that two and a half inch ball goes by some, God forbid, somewhere in that 36 square feet. And, uh, you know, it's going to happen. And getting the moms to understand that it's okay, it's going to happen um, is, is, is a challenge. And uh, I, had a, I had a kid in our, our doing our tryouts the other night for our Denver elite program and a little guy. And his mom said, he wants to be a goalie so bad. And, and I don't want him to be. And I, and I just looked at him and I said, do you like your mom? And he said, I love my mom. I said, then don't be a goalie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a tough, it's a tough role. The, the lacrosse goalie mom, cause you know, goalies will, we will win as a team and then sort of lose as a goalie, right? Like you, you, yeah, you, you feel that burden. Um, even though, 
you know, many times in order to give up a goal, the attackman had to lose it, right? They didn't ride properly. The the midi got beat. The slide wasn't there. If you give give up that goal as a goalie, it's like you feel like it's your fault and you feel like you're letting your team down. And that could be really tough to deal with as a, as a lacrosse goalie mom. Cause it's, you know, what, what a burden. So. Every time. And, and the goalies do, do get the, uh, you know, when it goes well, they also get the accolade, but um, yeah. You know, so, and, and it's funny. It's, it's also a position where the team doesn't think like that. The coaches very rarely think like that. You know, usually if a goal goes in, it, unless it was a, just a floater or, you right. know, just a, a, something really bad happened. Usually if it looks bad, it was probably a deflection. He was screened or the kid just shot at 110 miles an hour and hit the corner. So be it. But it's not the coaches and it's not the team. It's usually the, the mom and the goalie himself that hurts the most. Yeah. That's what I always tell goalies when they tell me that, like, I feel like I'm letting the team down or like someone else would be better you know, we, our team would be better if there was another goalie. And I'm like, is that, is that true? Like, like, think about that. Is that true? And most of the time it's not right. It's just, this, it's just this crazy thought that goes on in goalies heads. So um, I'd love to hear about, so when you were at Hopkins, you also coached the soccer team. Um, where did that come? How did that come to be? Did you, did you play soccer? Did you have any soccer knowledge or, or is just pure, pure coaching? Uh, you're using your coaching skills at that point. No, it was um, it was in March of 1984, where Henry Ciccaroni. Uh, well, actually, earlier than that, that that 80, the fall of '83, where Henry Ciccaroni stepped down. Don Zimmerman took over the head lacrosse coaching job at Hopkins, but he was also the soccer coach, so he could make a little bit more money. <laughs> so fast forward in March of '84, we knew the job was going to be open. And but we also knew that I'd be Zim's assistant, but I had to be the head soccer coach. So thankfully at RIT, I, I shared my office with a guy named Doug May, who was our soccer coach at RIT, and he was phenomenal. So I had all of March, April, and May to prepare for this. And I had a I had a Bob Scott, the great old AD at Hopkins, when he interviewed me, he had me and a, 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 it was a lacrosse slash football slash maybe soccer guy versus a soccer slash lacrosse guy to get the <laughs> final two spots. And, and, you know, I convinced Bob that, you know, I could, I could do this thing. I had had, you know, Doug educated me. And, and so interestingly enough, I, I you know, I get this job and, and I, the first meeting, I promised the team two things. I said, listen, you guys are smart guys. Most of the guys on Hopkins Soccer's Division Three program were engineers or pre-med guys, really smart, great kids. I said to them, listen, uh, I, you got to grow up because I've, I don't know much about soccer, but there's two things I can do. I can give great pregame and halftime speeches, and I can get you in great shape. And if you take over the rest, we're going to be okay. And, and the, the good news on it, like many of the jobs I took before, uh, you know, before the, the run at Princeton were, were kind of turnaround jobs, you know, the yeah. um, programs that hadn't done well. So Hopkins had had one winning year in 50 years of soccer. And so I'm like, well, how bad can I do? You know? <laughs> and so we went um, seven and nine my first year. And then my second two years, we went 14 and three. And my third year, we won. We got into the NCAA tournament. So 
um, I had this great grad assistant the first day of soccer practice in my first year, we sat up in the stands. I told the players, I said, listen, I'm going to be up there evaluating you guys. Meanwhile, I made the grad assistant sit next to me and tell me what the heck was going on. And so, uh, <laughs> and so, uh, you know, we, we faked it pretty well. The kids bought in. They, they liked the fact that they had some autonomy with this thing and they could, you know, they could give me ideas. We had some really good kids. Um, Sure, most of them are very well, uh, six, very well in success of being medical and doctors, and uh, and so the, you know it just worked. And and we, re, I, you know, I, the other thing I could do was recruit, and so we did that, and uh, and all turned out well. In fact, the people at Princeton told me, obviously, my my first and third year at Hopkins, we won the national championship in '85 and '87, so that helped. But when Princeton opened, some of the people on the committee told me that the, one of the main reasons I got the job was I had turned around or had been a part of turning around this soccer program that had been pretty bad. And they mm -hmm. said, well, Princeton lacrosse has been pretty bad for the last four or five years. If he could turn around something he doesn't know anything about, maybe he can turn around this that he knows something about. And that's kind of what opened the door for me at Princeton. Yeah, well, and turn around that program, you certainly did. Um, I got the 1988, it was 2-10. 1989, it was 3-11. and 11. I think Batch told me, had a quote. He said, I think Princeton always finished eighth in a, in a seventh-team league. Um, <laughs> and then in 1990, 11-4 with a quarterfinals appearance. I mean, what what an amazing turnaround. Like, what? how were you able to accomplish that, do you think? Now that you know this, this again, that to go with that same mantra of we can't we can't do any worse, you know. And so with with that in mind, we um, we went to work recruiting. And in fact, uh, you know, I the story goes um, when not my first year when we were two and thirteen because we kind of had what we had, and we had a couple of really good players. A guy named Rob Palumbo was actually an All-American that year on a team that only had 80 goals on and 15 games. So, uh, but, um, so the next fall, which was my first recruiting class, um, the first meeting, I told the guys, that the freshmen, they would win a national championship by the time they were seniors. And, uh, that, that went over, as my dad used to say, that went over like a lead balloon. <laughs> They're looking at me like, hey, relax. We're going to get we're going to get a good education and we're going to uh, and we're going to um, uh, and we're going to have fun here. And, and but it was a bunch of great kids that that bought in. And then lo and behold, in their senior year in 1992, that that group won the national championship against Syracuse. It came true. I want to talk about that game quite a bit, but um, first of all, the, the class of 94 class of 94 in particular 10, I think batch told me it was 10 recruits, seven all Americans. Uh, I mean, that is, that is some amazing recruiting, right? I mean, how do, how do you, uh, how do you spot such talent and what, what makes you such a good recruiter coach? And by the way, oh, look, recruiting in 94 is a lot different than recruiting in 2022. Yeah. Yeah, well, I think the, uh, you know, by then we had made the tournament in, in 90. And uh, so we were recruiting those guys. In fact, I remember in 1990, Batch came to our first game because he was a Baltimore kid. And we, we lost to Hopkins 20 to 5. And uh, we had this post-game reception in the Hopkins basement of the Hopkins library. 
And he looked at me and he said, what did I do? I said, relax, we're going to be better, you know, but because those guys were coming up in that next class, but that 94 group was, you know, the 90, everybody talks about the 92 group winning that first national championship, but a lot of the guys who had a lot of input into that were the 94 guys, you know, Kevin Lowe and Eddie Calkins and uh, David Morrow and Batch, of course, and, and, you know, all the, all these great guys. And so, it was a combination of three classes that had, um, you know, believed in Princeton, believed in, in me and, and Metsy, thank God. And uh, um, we slowly, we went, as you mentioned, we were 0-6 in 88 in the uh, Ivy League and then went 2-4, and 4-2, 6-0. So it was, a, it was a building process throughout. But uh, that 94 group was, was really special. Kevin Lowe was still to this day, maybe the best feeder I, you know, he and he and Ryan Boyle, the best feeders I ever had. And, and uh, they just made each other better. They believed in each other and no one else believed in them. So it was, uh, it was quite a group. Yeah. And when you're doing your recruiting, I mean, are you, I mean, how do, how do you convince someone to come play for you? Convince someone what? To come play for you? No, uh, you know, it's, it, we, even to this day, um, we don't buy into the norm. You know, mm-hmm. we, we, the first thing I tell parents right away is I'm a tough coach to play for. And my goal in all of this is to win lacrosse games, but make your son a better man when he goes from 18 to 22, because I'm going to be with him more than you are. And so we have certain basic tenets that we believe in still to this day. We we travel in jackets and ties. We don't allow facial hair. We have uh, guys get their hair cut. We have uh, certain academic rules. We have certain strict uh, alcohol rules and drug rules. Um, you know, it's just, and, and you know, some people don't want that and mm-hmm. that's okay. Uh, and, right. and, you know, um, and we started with that back, of course, back in the late eighties and early nineties, it was uh, easier to find parents that had that same mindset but there was also a smaller number of recruits um but again the good news was there was a smaller number of teams who could conceivably win a national champion so you went basically you know told them that i would love their child whether he was the first one or the last one on the team and that uh this this would help make them a better person and and they bought into that and they continue to buy into that and the ones that don't it's okay. I can tell you over the years I've had, I've had men come to me who now have their children that we're recruiting say mm-hmm. to me, Oh, you recruited me back then. And I, and I wish I had listened. And so, uh, you know, that, that's probably the biggest compliment you can get, but, um, you know, the proof is in the pudding, you know, when you tell them they're going to win and they win, that's, that helps when you tell them that, uh, you're going to care about them. That helps when you tell them that whether you're the first guy or the last guy, you're still going to be best friends with everybody else for the next 30, 40 years. Um, so I, I think, you know, maybe those lessons wouldn't be taught if we were still two and 13, but, um, uh, but uh, you know, the winning and the living right and, and getting the great education uh, has really helped over the years. Yeah. And um, thank you for that. That's awesome. Awesome answer. In, in 1990, the the head, the Hopkins head coaching job opens up, right? And needless to say, 
you're a perfect fit. And to kind of paint the picture, like at that point, like Hopkins, Hopkins lacrosse is, you know, that's the show. That's the pinnacle. That's the pinnacle of the sport. Talk me through your decision process to, uh, to stay at Princeton. Well, it was, it was pretty, pretty easy from, uh, from two angles. And I mentioned my wife before when, when we interviewed at Hopkins, in 1990, we had just beaten that same year. We lost 20 to five. We had just beaten them nine to eight in the in the first round in the NCAA tournament. It was our first tournament game, and and we had turned that around. And then uh, and then the job opened. So you know, Helen knew Bob Scott, and and he knew us, and so they invited us down. And uh, um, you know, there was no cell phones back then, so. Uh, <laughs> It was, uh, we went down and the two things that happened were, um, were, I'll never forget it. We were driving after this great visit and I'm assuming I'm going to take this job. And, uh, after this great visit, we're driving up, uh, back up to Princeton and in our 1977 Volkswagen Beetle, where if you, if you know a Volkswagen Beetle, you know that the person next to you isn't sitting too far from you. And, uh, and we're driving up 95 and, uh, Helen's, Helen is not a crier. And all of a sudden I look at her and I, uh, I still, I still tear up thinking about it. You know, um, I look at her and I see a tear running down the side of her face and I go, uh, I guess we're not going right. And she goes, no, it's not the right time. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. I said, okay. And I got home that night and on my home phone, Kevin Lowe called me up. And he said, there's a rumor out there. Tell me it's not true. And with those two things, I just said, I'm not, I'm not doing this. And, and I cared so much about Hopkins. But by then, we had turned it around. We had just beaten Hopkins. I had Batch and all those guys were coming the next year. Batch and Kevin Lowe and Scott Reinhardt and Eddie Calkins and all those guys were coming. And I just felt like if I was going to be true to my word to all those guys when I first recruited them, then... I had to stay. And it was really the first job I stayed at for more than three years. Love it. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Uh, Batch in our podcast told me about this conversation he had with you at the top 205 camp. I don't know. Do you remember that? Uh, I, I, I Vaguely, but uh, you know, when you, when you told me about it, I, I do. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, he, uh, he ended it, he ended it, uh, I don't know. I, hopefully this is true. He, he was like, you know, coach, I understand why you would take the job. It's perfect for you. It's a good fit. But, uh, you know, one thing I'll say is you'd be a liar. And, uh, yep. you, yeah. <laughs> and you and you said, you said, all right, I'm staying, but don't ever call me a liar again or something like something <laughs> like that. Well, batch batch is, uh, you gotta you look at this guy to, to this day and how successful he's been. And, uh, um, uh, batch was, was 30 when he was 18, you know, so he could talk to you like an adult. Most mm-hmm. of these guys were, you know, they turned three different shades of red before they said hello to you. But uh, this guy, he would state his mind and, and that's why he and Kevin becomes, became such great leaders for us, you know, uh, and, and, you know, I'm not sure exactly what the, the wordage was on it, but it was something, something to, to that effect. And, and, uh, you know, I, I, I often tell people that, you know, my dad, when I grew up, my dad was a beer truck driver. So when I was a teenager, I didn't think he knew what he was talking about. And then the more I got into teaching and coaching, the simple things he said, 
I still use all this time all the time. And and mm. and one of the things he said was uh, a handshake is one of the most important things in life. And and there's nothing worse than a liar. And so, um, you know, he had many of them, but, uh, you know, and, and uh, getting into this current world of of kids and dads, you know, take committing to one spot uh, and then and then moving on to another Mm -hmm. or coaches that are supposed to be your friends and peers, you know, smiling at you and then stabbing you in the back with recruits um, that we tell kids when, when we recruit them, you know, even though it happens once in a while that, you know, we're going to shake your hand in front of your dad and it better, it better mean that it's a promise because it's the most important thing in life. I love that. Yeah. I love that quite a bit. Uh, Fast forward one year, you guys uh, in the national championship tournament, you lose uh, triple overtime to Towson state Princeton. Um, And I remember batch, you know, kind of being really down as any goalie would, as any team would losing, losing such a dramatic game. And he's, he said something like, I'm never losing in overtime again. Do you, you kind of remember that story? Yeah, very clearly. We were walking off the field after shaking hands. The guys, it reminds me now that I look back of, of March, March 12th when, uh, or March 20th, 12th, I think it was in 2020 when, when we got told the season was over, you mm-hmm. know, with COVID, the, the guys didn't want to leave the field. Uh, when we lost to Towson that day, because it was actually the first time we were favored in a tournament. We had a buy in the first round and they had upset Virginia in the first round. So it was really crazy time. And uh, anyway, um, so at, at that time at Princeton, it was Palmer stadium and it had an open end to it. It doesn't anymore. They closed it off when they rebuilt Princeton stadium, but we were walking arm in arm under the, under the scoreboard and he looked at me and he said we will never lose another uh another overtime game as long as i'm here and we didn't we won 11 straight overtime games and uh and it's just just crazy from from even past when he was there yeah wow <laughs> that's, that's one a great thing to say and then two to live up to that commitment right uh, yeah and we won just, and we won both both his championships in overtime in 92 and 94 it, yeah well I, i'd love to talk about the 92 season um if if we could you know it's kind of a special special season an amazing championship game um you know what do you what do you remember about that about that 92 team because uh, you know you started one and two like started out pretty poorly in the season, but I'm curious what, you know, what are your, your main, your main memories of that team? Yeah, it was just, uh, you know, it was, it was like, remember the movie bad news bears where the kid comes in on the motorcycle yeah. and he ain't buying in, but all of a sudden he becomes one of their good players. Cause he finally bought in that class of, of batch and those guys came into a group of bad news bears. The 94 guys, the 92 guys were just this group of amazing believers. They, they just, I mean, they were, they were so much better than what we inherited, but they still were a group that every one of them had a different story, you know? And, uh, and, and so, but when you infiltrated them with, with some of those other guys, it just became this, not only this group of brave believers, but now we had we had some talent. And those two games we lost early, if if I remember right, were pretty close. And uh, and then we went on this run. And and every time we went on the on the run, every game we won, 
It's like, eh, we can do, we can do good. Well, we can do well, we can do well. And then, then the playoffs started and, and, um, it just, uh, you know, it was one surprise after another right down to that game itself. I mean, you know, coach Simmons, who I admire so much, you know, was, uh, was a little worried about playing us because he thought we were going to slow it down. And then we scored the first seven goals in the game in the championship game. And we were up seven, nothing. They ended up getting two at the end of the half to make it seven, two. And, um, you know, we had gone outside of our blueprint a little bit. And, mm. uh, um, and so went into the locker room and told the guys, look, they're going to make their run. <laughs> this isn't going to be 14 to four, you know, they're going to make their run hang in there. And then, uh, you know, as the story goes with, uh, you know, with, with having a lead and being man up with a little over a minute left, it kind of brought us back to being those bad news bears, giving up the ball and them going down and have scoring that crazy goal. And then batch making a save with his face in the first overtime and then winning, you know, in the second overtime, it's just one crazy story after another in a small amount of time that mimicked, our whole season. Yeah. What, what an ending. So, so I want to, I want to walk through this play if we could, if that's all right, if that's all right with you, you yeah. guys, you guys are man up, right? You're man up with a one goal lead, uh, searching for your first ever national championship and, right. and you got the ball. So you got, as a coach, you got to be thinking, I, I don't know, maybe you're not this way, but you gotta be thinking like, <laughs> all right, this is, this is looking pretty, pretty good. Um, guy gets stripped, right? loses the ball. They Gilman it down and batch comes out to do like kind of like a quick stick type move fans it. Uh, Tom Marichek picks it up, dips and dunks tie game. What, you know, as, as a coach, like that's gotta be, and, and as a player, as a team, that's gotta be like a huge emotional letdown. Like when, when you get the guys back in the huddle, what's, what's your speech? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We uh, looking at the scoreboard, the, the, Number 42 scored the goal with 42 seconds left. And, you know, and then it was just like, because David Morrow had had done a great job on Marichek the whole game, but he wasn't on him at the time because we were clearing the ball. You know, mm-hmm. we just break, everybody, everybody assumed Batch was going to just get it and chuck it back up. And so we weren't on our guys, so to speak. And then uh, Mike Mariano tries to jump in the goal. And of course, Marichek just throws one fake <laughs> and it's by him. And, uh, and so the, the short amount of time that you're allotted when you call a timeout, when the other team just stole your national championship from you, uh, you're the one they're looking at. And then, look, anybody who's watched me over the years knows that there have been plenty of times where I haven't been a good coach. And there have been plenty of times that, you know, we, we kind of came about this. How do we act in overtime? And and that was the, the kind of the poignant moment of all of that through all those years. And I, I, just looking at Batch walk off the field, I remember David Morrow had put his arm around him as he walked off and, and they just came to the huddle. And somehow, some way, uh, I had garnered up enough to not give Batch the hairy eyeball and not yell at him or anything and, and, and just express to him I think I said something like, you know, hey, you got us here, get us out of this, or something like that, and and he did. He certainly did, yeah. yeah. But I mean, that's a great coaching moment, right? Because like, if you we're talking about goalies, I mean, if you have this goalie that's committed 
I mean, what he would call a bonehead play, right? The Bill Buckner of lacrosse plays. Um, you've got to pick up their psyche. Uh, you've got to get you got to get the guys rallied up a little bit. And so I, I think that's you know an important thing, um, especially a kid like him. He was so smart and and so instrumental to our success that that uh, you know I, I I guess I think somebody somebody said I think maybe Batch told me that I said uh, hey we wouldn't be here without Batch so. He makes one mistake. Who cares? You know, let's let's get on with this. And then, then Dom Finn, who I I've talked to over the years, he's, he coaches a club team in in Texas, beats Andy Mo for a shot in the first overtime, and Batch goes down and then somehow cranes his neck back up, and ball skims off his face mask and goes over the goal. Well, well that would have been it. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, what a save, what a save, what a moment, right? Make a save in overtime. And I don't know, he's kind of, looks like he lifts up his shoulder a little bit, get, gets yeah, a little, gets a little something on there. Sure. So it's a lacrosse goalie podcast. As long as they make he contact, we give them credit. He reacted. Yeah. 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 He reacted. There's no doubt. Yeah. And then, and then um, at the beginning of second overtime, you guys win it right away. Talk to me a little bit about the feeling of winning that first national championship. You know, it's funny. I, I I still get the chills when I talk about it or look at that. Somebody put it up on the internet not too long ago, and you know, I mean, I look. I've been blessed in my career, but there's been so many great plays by young men that have helped me look good. But uh, that one, it was just. It really wasn't even the play because it had, as you said, it happened so fast. Why did? Why did Taylor Simmers cut through Simmons cut through uh, Simmers um, cut through when every other fast break we've ever had, he was supposed to stay down on the, on the bottom left. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, he did. And it just opened up the alley for Andy Moe. But even there, it was so Andy was so fast, um, you know, uh, that it was, it was when it hit the net and, and, um, you know, the, the place exploded and and uh, that you, you kind of went, whoa, you know, maybe we'll do this thing. And it was already done. Yeah, so it was, it was a pretty cool moment. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. Um, and then just such a great, great story. So th- thank you for sharing that. Um, I'd love to hear uh, talking a little bit about um, about Denver. Now, last last year, you know, on your guys roster, you had seven goalies, which which is quite a bit for, you know, a collegiate program. Um, and I'd love to hear, you know, what your thought was behind that and like how you went about, uh, you know, making sure a lot of guys got the looks that they needed. <clears throat> well, as I, as I mentioned earlier, we were the only college program that has a club program that's run by the coaches and that's our Denver elite program. So at the university of Denver, myself, Matt Brown, Trevor Tierney, who was with, who was coaching with us and our coaches, um, Coach helped coach the Denver Elite, the Denver Elite program, as well as some other great youth coaches that we have in our program. So, with that in mind, Trevor and Ryan Laplante actually do a, a goalie academy all fall and winter um, on Sunday nights, and so they get their hands on these guys and really, really coach them and really teach them. So, if you look at that roster, uh, you know we had Caleb Stroman, who was a Denver Elite kid. Jack Thompson's a Denver elite kid. And, um, and, and, and so those guys kind of come around uh, and, and they want to, they want to be, they want to be on Denver, you know, 
Um, and, uh, and so, and then with that came, uh, Jimmy Busick, who's a, uh, who's an old friend of mine. He was a midi of the year in 1991 at North Carolina. He coached with me in 94. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, he had a young man that had got a bad break at one of the Ivy League schools. So last minute we took him because I believe in friendships. And, and this kid's a great student, by, by the way. Um, and, and, and so all of a sudden it became a kind of a weird scenario of, of, of all these goalies. It, it wasn't meant, it wasn't something that was planned out, but I can tell you, I've learned from, from our goalies at Denver more than anywhere, because back at Princeton, you kind of had the way admissions work was I would get to list nine kids one year and 10 and second year and then nine and then 10. And the years where you have 10, we would, we would take a goalie. So most times, most years at Princeton, we had two, maybe three goalies. Maybe mm-hmm. there was a walk-on or you had a super student, you know, c- come in. Um, but, uh, um, and Owen oh, and, and Zach Groff, who was another Denver elite goalie, went to Rutgers his first year and transferred back. So we had all these guys. And, 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 uh, and so um, it just, it just worked, worked, kind of worked out that way. But one thing I've learned from the goalies over these past few years is that I'm so proud of these guys. Um, this kid, Caleb Stroman, who just graduated, probably played a total of, I don't know, one full game in, in four years. And this guy is the kindest, the, and I told him this, the best person I've ever been around. He, mm. he just was so good. And you wanted for him so badly to, to be the guy. But uh, Jack Thompson was better. And, 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 and it worked out better. And so, but these goalies as a group were so tight and so supportive of each other whenever any one of the other ones went in the game. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, we had, we had, uh, we had all these different guys go in and out of games, whether it be, we were winning big or God forbid losing big, you know, um, Cole French started probably 10, 10 or 12 games for us over the four years and had some great victories for us. So uh, point being is I was always so amazed at this attitude of these goalies in the one position. Well, I guess you could say face off as well, mm-hmm. but in the one clear position where it's one guy for to have five or six other guys being so supportive and so loud, every save he made or, or, be the first ones to him if he at the end of a quarter or at a timeout and then be huddled together in locker rooms uh, was so gratifying. And, and honestly, it, it so motivated me that that these young men would give up their four years or five years of college uh, of, of playing where they could have played in so many other places to be to be a, a Denver goalie, a pioneer goalie, just gave me such such gratitude for all those guys that's awesome i haven't met caleb i um i sponsored jack thompson last year so i worked with him and got to know him pretty closely great young man Mm -hmm. awesome young man just really speaks to i think the 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 caliber of young man that you recruit there and he's great he's great so big big shout out to jack if he's listening Um, speaking of recruiting, you know, if there's a high school kid or, or maybe a little bit younger, you know, 15, 14, 13 year old goalie 
that wants to play for somebody like a coach Tierney, what, what advice would you give them? What, you know, what should they be doing right now? How do you recommend they handle their business? Get A's in class. Get some sort of citation recommendation from a neighbor or a teacher that says he's a good person. Play other sports, play soccer, play hockey, play football, play basketball. Because if you're a goalie at 13 years old, you know, you get hit in the shins, it doesn't feel good. And, and so it, it's, it's a microcosm of the rest of their career. And so if they can handle those things, be a good student, be a good person, um, obviously work hard, be trained well and all that stuff, and, 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 and handle getting hit in the shins um, without turning sideways, now you got something special. Now, obviously, they've got to work on their hand speed and the game and understanding. It's funny to me, Ryan LaPlante always told me he never watched film, which is really funny to me because I feel like you got to see the shooter, know the shooter, right. where does he shoot? But what I've learned from Ryan and from all the other ones is, you know, we make these massive scouting reports, right? Oh, number 13, when he... When he gets a step down, if he's going overhand, he's going high to low. If he drops his stick, he's going low to high. Hey, uh, Coach T, I hate to tell you, but by the time he catches that and releases that, it's about 1.8 seconds. I'm not thinking back to the scouting report. You know, <laughs> I'm going to go with my gut. I'm going to go with who I am, and I'm going to react to it if I can. And and that's why I you know I love these guys so much to that work so hard to understand the game. I love that. Well, those are great tips for the young kid. Does it matter if, you know, do you look at like their high school record or their club record? Like do you weigh one or the other? That doesn't matter. It's just kind of those other things that you, that you mentioned before. The young man man we just committed for our 2023 class plays on a terrible high school team in New Jersey. He's on a very good club team, but he's a guy that we talked earlier about playing our style. He's a big kid. He plays at home. Uh, you know, and he, he's had goal score on him. You know, the, 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 the one thing I would, going back to your last question, one thing I would, would recommend, and I say this to goalies all the time, and they, they laugh at me when I talk at goalie clinics or camps or tournaments or whatever it is. In 41 years of college coaching, I've never seen a goalie film or a goalie clip with a goal getting scored on him. <laughs> and I always kid him about at these tournaments or these camps or these clinics. The first guy that sends me a clip with a goal getting scored on you, I'm going to give a full scholarship to. <laughs> I love it. I always say it. it it's yet to have happened. And I the know. reason for that is it's a highlight film. I get it. But this kid that we just, I'm not allowed to say his name because he's not signed yet, but yep. um, he, we took him over at least 50 other goalies that we've watched over the year that have shown interest in us because we believe he's a great kid. He's a great student. He really likes being coached. Um, Us and and my nephew, Seth at Hofstra and uh, Nick Myers at Ohio state and his brother, Pat at Lafayette and the Michigan guys. And um, we do this camp in the, in the summer um, that uh, we call the collegiate games where we bring in our recruits from the two years and get to coach them for a couple of days. And 
it, it's really interesting to see them come come together and uh, watching the goalies is for the first time really having them play for you in person is really a cool thing. So it's, uh, you know, so I don't, I don't care. You know, I, I, I care about high school coaches. That's what I care about because, you know, every, every coach club or high school is going to tell you, Oh, the kid's great. All mm-hmm. right. Well, we will, we'll decide if he's great in the goal, but a high school coach sees him in the hallways sees him with his buddies in, in class, sees him play football or soccer or hockey, um, knows what he acts like uh, over the weekends. And, and the club coaches know what he's like in a hotel, know what his parents are like, which becomes very, very important to us. Um, and so uh, we'll figure out if we think he's a good goalie. and We don't care what his high school record is, that's for sure. Love it. Well, after this comes out, coach, you're going to get a slew of videos of, uh, <laughs> of, of highlight reels of goalies just getting scored on. So. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Like, what is this? How about all the saves? Into, into 30. <laughs> there you go. Um, I think I wrote in my questions, I wanted to ask you, you strike me as a coach who gives a great pregame, great halftime speech. And then you were talking about the soccer, your soccer uh, coaching days. And you said, I could give a great, you kind of confirmed my suspicion. What, what goes into a great pregame or a great halftime speech? Um, you know, I think, you know, you do a lot of thinking during the week. Uh, we probably talk to the players during the week too much. So that by the time you get to your pregame speech, they've probably heard it before, except that I think the pregame speech, for some reason, kids to kids these days, they all have the headphones on. They're, they're all listening to their own music, uh, you know, because in the locker room, uh, you know, I've had to outlaw some music because it's distasteful. Um, but so they all listen to their own stuff. But when the pregame speech or the pregame talk comes, the, the phones go down, the headphones go down. And, and what you're looking for is, is, is that, that, that eye contact, that eye to eye. Are they looking at you? Are you looking at them? And, and are they dialed in? And I think the way to get that is most times, sometimes not. Um, is is through emotion, um, yeah. and and so it really doesn't matter what you say. It's more how you say it. And I've had many that have I thought worked, and I've had many that haven't worked. I remember in the uh, in the ninety seven ninety six uh, semifinal, we we're playing Duke, and in the in, it was at Maryland, and they had a two sided whiteboard that you could flip over. So I had this great pregame speech for Duke all set because Duke had nine guys that had, and rightfully so, they chose a great place. Coach Pressel was a right, was a great coach, but nine guys that we had actively recruited had visited Princeton, and I wrote their names on the back of the whiteboard, and then flipped it over, and then did our, you know, our pregame. You know, whether it was it was Metsy doing the man up plays or we were going through our pregame, you know, uh, agenda or whatever it might be. And so just before the game, I said, oh, one more thing. And I flipped the whiteboard over (laughs) and it's got these nine guys names. And I went down the board. He didn't want to be your teammate. He didn't think you were good enough. He didn't think Princeton was a good enough school. He wanted to go go down south where it's better weather. And I had something for each guy. And they were so fired up that we got down 6 nothing to Duke in the first quarter. <laughs> Too pumped up. 
too pumped up, too huh? pumped up. Yeah, sometimes yeah. you play with a little too much anger, right? Exactly. And then, yeah, we came back and actually ended up back then. Thank God there were no shot clocks back then because we held the ball for the last the last uh, nine, four minutes of the game and one one by one goal. So it was it. it was crazy. I love it. You made a. Uh, you made a uh, reference to to pulling the Princeton goal, Eric uh, Cairns, I think, and and yeah, you know, Patrick Cairns, yeah, Patrick Cairns, yeah. When do you, as a head coach, when when do you pull a goalie? When do you make that decision? It, it's it's a tough one because the two times that I've done it, when it was major implications, were the that ninety six. That same uh, that that championship that semifinal and that you know what it must have been ninety ninety six we played uh, I'm getting my dates mixed up but anyway Patrick uh, by the time of the year what happens is these guys the starter plays so much and he's practicing so much that you feel like um, are they getting tired you start to outthink yourself so we had this we had this. Um, in 96 it was. So we had this um, uh, backup goalie. His name was Pancho Gutstein. His dad named him after great tennis player, Pancho Gonzalez. And uh, Pancho had size 14 shoes. And, um, and uh, Pat, we were, we were playing, um, we were playing Syracuse in the semifinal at, at, at Maryland. And uh, Patrick, they, they went on a run. They, they, we, we were back and forth, back and forth, and they, they went on a run. And I just, I felt that on that one, he was getting frustrated. You saw emotion from him, like we talked about before. Like the, mm-hmm. the goalie's got to be the most calm guy, even if he's hurting inside. He's got to outwardly, because the players, the players are going to read either the coaches, the body posture, or the goalies. Oh, right. And so, um, he, I just thought Patrick was was showing too emotion at the time. Pancho hadn't played more than 20 minutes the whole season, unless it was against, we, we were beating teams pretty good then. You know, that's when I had Hubbard Hessen Massey scoring 20 goals, 19 goals a game. But so Pancho played some, but I, and he was our guy, he was our backup. And so I put him in and, uh, you know, I, I always give Kark, Carcatero hard time about this, or he gives he gives looks at me crazy sometimes about we put Poncho in and Poncho makes like two kick saves and we end up beating Syracuse. Fast forward, I come back on Monday to play um uh Monday we played Maryland. Oh no, 96 we played uh Virginia. Virginia and um started Patrick again in the goal because I thought, yeah, that was a freak thing and whatever well he he just wasn't on they were scoring virginia was scoring on them they had great teams and uh so i said what the heck and we put poncho back in and so this kid who was basically a backup goalie for four years ends up making the all tournament team and being like the hero of this of this championship (laughs) here we go and what Crazy. a great name, Pancho Gutstein, huh? Yeah, so that <laughs> was 96. And then fast forward, and then 97, Patrick goes the full year. We go undefeated. He was phenomenal. Patrick had a great, great year, you know, won the championship. And uh, we had, again, we had Hubbard S. Massey, but Patrick was so good that year um, that we didn't never had to use his backup, who, who was Corey Popham, who started the next year. So fast forward to 98, we're playing Duke in the, 
in the quarterfinals at Hofstra. This was a different Duke game than the one in 96, but, uh, and uh, Duke scores on six of their first seven shots again, mm -hmm. right? Well, here's the problem. My backup goalie is my freshman son. And I'm, I'm at home on Long Island and there's 13,000 people in the stands. It's hot as, hot as Hades. And I looked at him and I said, let's go. I asked Metsy, I said, what do you think about Trevor? He said, do it. And I said, all right, Trevor, let's go. Well, he went in and, and uh, you know, as he, you know, he so humbly said, he said the, uh, at the press conference afterward, uh, he said, uh, I think our defense knew I was so bad that they played so great that I only had to make a handful <laughs> of saves. And he only let up like two goals. And, and so, um, now I had the next decision, which I made the same decision I did, except I didn't replace him. I now had my son, who just won us the game against Duke in the quarterfinals, and now we're going to the semifinals against Maryland, and uh, I put Corey back in, and Corey ends up being the MVP of the Final Four. Mm. So it was decisions after decisions after decisions, and then fast forward to, to Denver, we had two years where Ryan LaPlante and Jamie Faust split halves. Right. And so that was, and the one funny one was um, Jamie, Ryan always started and Jamie always played the second half. Well, we're playing um, North Carolina in the quarterfinals again at in Indianapolis in, in the Colts stadium. And they are just crushing us. And it's in the second quarter and um, no, it was the first quarter and they're scoring goal after goal after goal. I think they scored six. Well, they scored five. And I turned to Jamie, who's not ready to go because he's always played the second half. And I said, let's go. Well, I yell to Ryan to come off the field. He's looking at me crazy. Jamie's trying to get his stuff on. He's looking at me crazy. We had no goalie on the field when they scored their sixth goal. Jamie's <laughs> trying to run on and Ryan's trying to run off. So I looked like a a bigger dope than I, than I, than I did most of the time, but, uh, <laughs> um, you know, and then you have other times where Ryan's playing great in the first half. Jamie comes to me and says, leave him in. Then mm. another time against Syracuse in the semifinals, Ryan's playing great in the first half. I put Jamie in anyway, we end up losing by a goal. So all these decisions to pull goalies, it's just like a lot of coaching decisions it looks really good when you, when it works and it looks yeah. really bad when it doesn't work. Yeah. Right. Well, fortunate you've, you've had a lot more uh, great decisions and great coaching moments than non, but th thank you coach so much for coming on the show. I could listen to you tell lacrosse stories uh, for, for another couple hours, but uh, may maybe this is a good spot to, to, uh, to end it. I do have a question for you. Um, you know, athletes themselves reach kind of like a peak age and then performance starts to go down. Are you as a coach, are you just, you just keep going up? You got a couple more years left in the tank or what's in the plans for you? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, I have an amazing, amazing associate head coach in Matt Brown and uh, Matt's Matt will be the next head coach at Denver someday. And uh, the, the, the beauty of Matt Brown is number one, he's like the greatest offensive mind in the game. He's currently uh, over in Ireland coach because he's Canadian coaching the, uh, the, uh, Canadian under 21 team this mm -hmm. year, but that's a phenomenal coach. And he's more like a, 
you know, I, I call my, it's, it's funny. I, I used to have two sons, Trevor and Brendan, and now I feel like I have four sons, Trevor, Brendan, Matt Brown, and Trevor Baptiste. And, and Trevor Baptiste and I always kid about uh, Trevor Tierney always says Trevor Baptiste is my favorite Trevor. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway, uh, you know, Matt has said to me, coach, uh, I'll be with you as long as you, as long as you want to do this thing. So uh, we'll see, you know, I'm no spring chicken. And, uh, you know, I always say, um, if I'm excited, if I'm excited on, on the opening day, then, then I know I still got it. But, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's also a, it's, it's getting crazy with recruiting and all these other things. So, uh, yeah. you know, it, it, they say, they say, you'll know when you know, and, and, when that day comes, uh, you know, I'll know. Perfect. Well, coach, we'll be rooting for you this upcoming season. Uh, bring home another national championship. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. If you had to leave the goalies out there with a, with a final piece of advice, what would that be? Don't be a goalie. Boom. <laughs> don't, don't be a goalie. I love it. Coach, thank you so much for your time. We'll, we'll see. Thanks, Damon. I appreciate it. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed that episode with Coach T, one of the legends, one of the legends of this sport, and knows a surprising amount about the lacrosse goalie position. I remember talking to, uh, to Jack Thompson, one of my sponsored goalies, both last year and this year, Denver's Jack Thompson, and I said, well, Coach T probably doesn't know much about the goalie position, and he said, uh-uh, you'd be surprised. He knows a ton. In addition to having a son who is a great lacrosse goalie, uh, Trevor Tierney, of course. You know, he's coached so many great teams, and you can't have a great team without a great lacrosse goalie. So, so many awesome stories. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If you're still listening, I want to say thanks, and I also want to say you should check out the College Goalie Training Packs. I've sponsored 17 awesome young men and women, collegiate goalies, and they've created a lacrosse goalie training pack to level up the youth lacrosse goalie game. So if you're a youth or you coach youth or you deal with youth lacrosse goalies, this is for you. Each pack comes with five things. You've got a virtual coaching session where they're gonna go deep on a particular topic. Tons of fun, we're gonna do those live. You got the instructional video series where you get to learn drills and tips and techniques that have taken these collegiate goalies game to the next level. Those are awesome. I spent the last couple weeks editing those and it's amazing content. We then have the save breakdowns where we watch tape with the college goalie, watch saves, watch plays. And I pick their brain about what are you saying right here? What are you thinking right here? What are, you know, what's going through your head? Why did you do this? Why did you do that? An incredible learning tool. That's the save breakdown. Number four, you're gonna get a live Q&A. Uh, ask them anything, college recruiting process, how they string the sticks, uh, favorite part about being a goalie, tips for certain situations. You can really ask them anything. Those are tons of fun, the live Q&As. And then fifth, you just get access to DM them anytime. So if you have a question and you've bought that college goalie training pack, you can shoot them a DM or an email and they will get back to you. Maybe not right away. These are busy college students, um, especially if you ping them during the season when they get a little bit busier. But I guarantee they will get back to you if you have gotten their pack. It's a tremendous value. Each pack is just 60 bucks. And if you want to pick up multiple, there's bundles you can get, like the all girls, all guys, or you can get all of the packs. Tremendous value for amazing lacrosse goalie training. LaxGoalieRat.com slash college. Lax 
goldierat.com slash college. I hope to see you there. Take care. You've been listening to the Lax Goalie Rat Podcast with your host, Coach Damon Wilson. 